All right, uh, everybody, hello. This is Volts for August 18th, 2023. A conversation with Saul Griffith. I've got here with me a man who needs no introduction to the Volts audience. I don't say that often, but I think it's true in this case. Saul Griffith, uh, crucially involved in rewiring America, now over here in Australia, involved in rewiring Australia, trying to get Australia to match or exceed IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act here in Australia. I won't belabor any further introductions, Saul. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining me in a strange little kissing booth in <laughs> Sydney's central business district. Yes, yes, we are. This is the second ever Volts uh, recorded in person. And just so the audience knows, this came together at the last minute and neither of us have prepared at all. So we're all just freestyling here and we're just gonna have a, a conversation. So Saul, let's start with, um, you were intimately involved in the sausage making of IRA. Why don't you just start with telling us a little bit about how on earth someone like you ended up <laughs> in the halls of DC uh, with the ear of lawmakers? What's the, what's the origin story of this? The romantic origin story is just before I married my wife, and I think it was 2007, I said, if, if the world hasn't made sufficient progress on climate change by 2020, can I become an eco-terrorist? <laughs> to which it was so far in the future, um, she said yes. Surely will, by then, surely. And then 2019 came around and I said, remember that we, <laughs> you made that promise to me. And she said yes, but we didn't have two children. <laughs> so you're not allowed to do that. And she sort of actually first planted the idea in my head. Um, you're always complaining that the hardest thing to do in energy technology is the regulatory stack. So why don't you focus on regulatory and policy for a while? I give you leave, we can afford it, see what you can do. Right about then I was having another conversation with a guy called Alex Lasky. He was founder of Opower. He wanted to talk to me about heat pumps. We were working on some new heat pump technologies and the conversation spiraled out of control and we said, well, working on heat pumps is good, but these Democrats keep saying climate change. So this is in the primaries. Every time any of them say climate change, they wince a little bit and try to shy away from what you would you do. So we started rewiring America. We booked a few tickets to DC. We took a few trips to DC and we thought that we were going to be an advocacy organization trying to help Democrats talk positively about what the energy transition could be, how we could save money, how we, our health outcomes could improve, how we could change local community economics. So we were trundling along with that effort, working with all of the presidential candidates at the time, and I, have to, I can retroactively say I loved them all exactly equally. <laughs> um, Didn't you love Jay Inslee just a, just a slight bit more, though? Understanding where you're from, I, <laughs> I, I know why you say that. And I, I did love Jay Inslee just a little bit more. <laughs> and just a little bit more than Jay Inslee, I also loved Elizabeth Warren. Ah, oh, yes. Um, R.I.P. I know she's still alive. I'm sure she's, well, maybe not politically, but... She, <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. Um, to her. <laughs> to, to I have a habit of judging people by their staff, and it was so obvious to me that her staff loved her and believed in the mission. And yeah, yeah. It, was, um, it was extraordinary to behold. So we were doing that and then the election was won and it became, we'd hired, Alex and I are probably both ADHD to an extreme, so we hired a competent adult to run the organization Rewiring America, a guy called Ari Matusiak, he'd actually worked in the White House under Biden, worked on similarly complex legislation, the American Healthcare Act, 
so we knew a bunch of people on the climate team going in and we were worried so we went to talk because really what we wanted to prosecute was the case for electrification of everything is really the only pathway to eliminate the majority of emissions and secondly that any spending should equally or even maybe bias more a focus on the demand side and what I mean by the demand side the places where we use energy so households small businesses Part of that was because there was still the idea that you just decarbonize the grid and they were thinking about clean electrification standards. But if you just do that, you don't also electrify the cars and electrify the homes right, and eliminate right. all that stuff. So I was, I was worried that we were going to have insufficient climate policy because of that. So we did a lot of work working on the demand side. You know, the early days, we didn't know whether the Democrats were going to take on the filibuster and whether they were going to go big. So they were sigh, yes. <laughs> So there was three or four or five months where we thought there was going to be regulation and legislation. <laughs> and I think people were thinking about regulating and legislating the, uh, the grid and electrification grid. When that fell through, uh, let's say that ears were a lot more receptive to what we were trying to propose, which was this demand side electrification. We got extremely lucky a few times. He's told this story himself, so hopefully I'm not speaking out of school, but. Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, his dad was a lineman, so familiar with <laughs> electricity. Uh, the only senator with an engineering training. <laughs> he had heard, uh, not to belittle your podcast, but he'd heard another fabulous podcast with <laughs> me and Ezra Klein when he was driving across the country with COVID. And he cold emailed us at Rewiring America and we actually let the email sit in our inbox for a few weeks. But eventually he became a champion and in fact helped us, and I, you know, I got up at 2 a.m. So in the middle of all this, we were going to move to Washington. We had booked an Airbnb. My parents were going to come and live in Washington. My kids were going to do homeschooling on the mall. <laughs> and I, w I was going to do six months of door-to-door -door knocking Republicans and Democrats, selling the abundance agenda of, of climate solutions. And three days before we left, San Francisco went into COVID lockdown. Dope! So... We persisted in San Francisco for another six or nine months. Then when San Francisco shut down the schools for another year, we said, oh, well, we know the schools are open in Australia, so we ripped off the Band-Aid and got the hell out of Dodge. Anyway, that meant that Rewiring America now was doing a lot of this work internationally. We were still a tiny team. And I got up at 2 a.m. one night to talk to the Democratic Senate caucus, basically a tutorial of how the U.S. energy system works, why you have to electrify which there was precedent for during the oil crisis in the 70s. There was a book produced by Georgetown University, which in the opening paragraph in the book is like, this book will show the competent person in one hour or less how the US energy economy works. So I was <laughs> trying to do that. In an hour or less. In an hour or less with the Sankey diagrams. Here, here it is. And we made the case for demand side electrification. We were lucky in a million ways. We got involved with a large coalition of people who were working on pieces of the bill, people you know, like Leah Stokes, Jesse Jenkins. And we rolled up our sleeves, sort of sensing that unless people outside of government put as many ideas down as possible, that we, it would be underwhelming. A lot of my audience, I think, is, is quite familiar with Ira at this point, but maybe tell us a little bit about the sausage making. What is your impression of how a bill becomes a law, as, as they say, um, was it more or less irrational than you expected? Was there, were there more or, or fewer um, sort of sane people involved who had their head on straight? And I think there was a huge number of people very well-meaning and diligent and working hard. 
I think there were a lot of people who would fit those descriptions, but you might say had 30 and 40 or 50 year old ideas that they wouldn't let go of. I was surprised at how much we were facing opposition from the gas industry in many different forms mm. on all aspects of the bill. Really, I was political naive. You know, I was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur for 20 years. I never really cared for politics. So I thought the legislation was written by politicians, but I had an <laughs> unbelievable awakening that it's actually you know, written by lobbyists. So we became uh, basically a lobbying organization and worked with a few others. So I, it was all a, a giant learning journey for me, for all of us. My impression is that the sort of, you know, because originally Build Back Better was this massively, you know, sprawling, it had healthcare, it had childcare, voting reform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everything got winnowed away basically down to just the climate stuff. Oh, you know, I saw a little bit further back even than that. Um, AOC's staff contacted me when it was the Green New Deal. Right, yes. Can you help us come up with some climate policy? And winnowed I think they gave me four weeks and then they, <laughs> they announced something two weeks before I'd been able to do much. But yeah, it went from, you know, I think the transition from Green New Deal to Build Back Better was just as... Winnowed and winnowed and winnowed and winnowed, shrunk, 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 shrunk. But my impression was that in the details, a lot of that sort of original wonky thinking and a lot of that original legislative writing more or less survived. Like for all the drama, Manchin took out the beloved clean energy, whatever the... I could never remember the name of the damn program, but the one sort of stick. Right. <laughs> the one stick left in Ira. But otherwise, it seems like in the details, nobody really mucked around too much with what the wonks originally put on paper. Is that your, that your impression too? Pretty much. The wonks came out strong. Um, it felt to me like a special process, like this is the first time that engineers and physicists were in the drafting room. And modelers and it just seemed yeah. like, oh yeah, it, it seemed like um, I was shocked and surprised like I would anticipated that Manchin, because of all the fits he was throwing, would have policy opinions. <laughs> and, and, and if he came and could be persuaded, he would have policy asks. But instead, he just woke up one morning and was like, sure, whatever, this, this thing that's sitting here is, is fine. So he ended up actually not messing with it, maybe to his subsequent chagrin. <laughs> the rumor I heard from people who were in those negotiations were like, you know, normally this is fairly easy. You have an obstructionist Senator, you tell, ask them how many schools and highways they want. Right. You, you give them schools and highways, and um, anyway, rumor has it that he there was no there yeah. was no negotiating. Yeah, it was just it, it was unclear what he wanted, yeah. and then it was unclear why he changed his mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly why, but I do remember we made a presentation called "Electrification is Anti-Inflationary," <laughs> and it's an extraordinary graph. You can look at the household cost of energy in the US for all of the energy you use. So your petrol, your gasoline, sorry, I'm living in Australia now, so <laughs> I have to translate. All the cost of your gasoline, your diesel, your propane, your network gas, your electricity. And you can see it, that chart from 1980 through to 2020 is upwards to the right at roughly the price of inflation. That shouldn't infl surprise you because the energy is a core part of the consumer price index. Yes, a so, big part of the inflation we experienced in that Manchin claimed to want to do something. Right, about. so we then showed a chart that here it is up into the right. If you electrified everything in an American household, this is the amazing thing, when you buy solar cells and put them on your roof, you're paying for 20 years of energy up front. Yes. 
And so then you're paying a fixed interest payment. So you've got no, inf you're inflation-proofed your energy inputs, you've bought, you're depreciating the electric vehicle, you're depreciating the electric stove, you're depreciating the electric water heater. And so in fact, your cost of energy stays dead flat at your price of finance. And that's a pretty profound insight that, you know, this energy transition is the substitution of finance for fuels. Yeah, so I've been trying to carry that message here to Australia. Is this true at the micro level? Is true at the household level? And it's true at the, true at the, the macro, macro level, too. I, I don't think economists have grappled with this yet. It's really I know. amazing. I, and, and the implications are, you know, you, you follow that string for a while. It is transformative. So then let's just briefly wrapping up on IRA. Obviously, it had to go through budget reconciliation. So obviously, the whole regulatory and standards side got chopped off. So just uh, uh, say a little bit about what you think it's missing, what, where you think it falls short, what you would have liked to see more of in it had there been a more sane <laughs> policy process and vehicle. Industry would have more certainty if there was regulatory teeth. Right. Some, some sticks and the industry would make investments with more certainty were there. We sun, you know, Norway ICE vehicles in 2025, uh, Victoria just announced they're going to stop gas in new build homes. So there's these precedents that that sort of certainty would certainly help. And I would have loved to have seen that. I remember actually in, in talking to that Senate caucus pointing out that really only three fifths of the US en energy economy was being addressed by the bill. There was actually a huge amount for vehicles and transport, huge amount for households, but very little for the commercial sector. Mm and very, very little for industry, apart from a few advanced manufacturing things. And so I think Jesse Jenkins is a bit optimistic when he predicts maybe it'll get 40% emissions reductions. I think it probably gets 25. Mm. Um, I'll have that conversation with him soon. That's quite a delta. I hope he's right. Um, <laughs> that would be great. But so I think they missed large pieces of the economy, didn't have regulatory teeth. But quite honestly, in retrospect, it was the only thing it could be and probably was more by accident than anyone's grand plan, kind of genius. <laughs> because I think it gets some Republican proofness through being all incentive-based. I still remember the moment where, you know, we're a year into the process and everyone's like, oh, pins down, tear up everything you've done, now it's a tax code hack. <laughs> and it's a tax code hack. Much like virtually all of US policy, federal policy for the last whatever decade or two. Yeah, but I think there's something really, um, I now am prone to saying to the Australian government, you're not serious unless you're rewriting the tax code. And that's the evidence of whether you are going to fix climate policy. So Biden is now out saying, and he has his people out saying, you know, this is Bidenomics, by which they are saying, the era of sort of free trade, free market, neoliberalism is over. To what extent do you think that is sort of a retroactive wrapper to put around IRA? And to what extent do you think that's really sunk in in D.C.? How dead is neoliberalism in D.C.? <sighs> <laughs> um. This is where the podcast goes off the rails. <laughs> um, I don't remember most of the people doing the modeling wrestling with international trade in the work. So I think it is a little bit retrospective by my interpretation. But I think it's a very honest assessment that we are not operating in anything remotely like a free market. China is producing 90 plus percent of the world's solar cells with you know, 90% of them contain this technology that was invented in Australia. 
about a mile from where we're sitting, or 1.8 kilometres. <laughs> um, China is producing the overwhelming majority of the batteries. You know, the Australian steel industry, which I stay in touch with because my first degree was in metallurgy and my first job was in a, in a rod mill, is extremely aware that you could not make the tower pieces for a wind turbine. That's maybe the simplest thing in renewable energy is to make a giant steel tube. But the best estimates are that China is underwriting those 25 to 40%. <laughs> so you don't, unless you figure out some way to rebalance that, then your, your economy is not going to make the, the transition very elegantly. It takes two to neoliberalism. <laughs> it takes two to neoliberalism. So that piece of neoliberalism is maybe dead, but there's another piece of neoliberalism that is alive and well, which you might call the poorest borders for international capital. Headline in New Zealand last week is that BlackRock is huge amounts of money going into New Zealand's regulated electricity industry to buy all the offshore wind turbines. So in regulated monopolies around the world, you get a guaranteed profit margin. Australia gives a guaranteed profit margin of 9% to transmission and network companies, which is why most of our transmission and network companies are owned by Singapore and China. Mm. So I worry that if countries aren't aware of that, that all of the, all of the profit, all of the margins is going to leak away from these countries. Mm. Right? If really you're, you can generate your own energy domestically, so Australia's economy is about a tenth the size of the US, but we import $40, $50 billion a year in oil. We import basically all of their oil. We have abundant sunshine. Driving an electric car in Australia on rooftop solar costs you about two cents a mile. It's about 28 cents a mile to drive it on gasoline or a diesel. So we could totally have this $40 billion a year windfall driving Australian electric cars, but you know, we, we may not choose to do that well. You'd prefer to keep that in Australia, obviously. Um... Um, I think you would like to keep as much of that in Australia as possible. I think the fact that we've sold off our gas networks and electricity networks to overseas interests in a bunch of places is a bit of a disaster. That will hamper this transition. That won't allow us to build a lowest cost energy system because you know the rules that we wrote 20 years ago that were a good idea in the fit of neoliberalism at the turn of the century <laughs> are not a good idea now. So um, I think neoliberalism has got some wins and losses, hopefully a few more losses. Half, half dead. Half dead, it'll zombie along. Um, <laughs> you, you remarked to me yesterday on the phone that you smell a bit more neoliberalism in Australia than you thought you might. Mm. Um, that's been my experience in returning home. Interesting. Well, let's talk about, um, speaking of which, what's your impression of the international effect of IRA, the, the effect of IRA on the international conversation in other countries? It's extraordinary, and this is a win that America should take and the Biden administration should loudly pronounce as their victory. Without IRA, the world wouldn't have done anything particularly significant. Because of IRA, Australia is now engaged in a conversation with itself and amidst government of what is our response to the IRA. Um, every, every government, I think, is... Yep. Um, <laughs> um, we now have rewiring Australia, rewiring New Zealand in both places. We're trying to look at policy that you would write in those contexts that goes further than the IRA. I think, Jesse, in my argument of 25 or 40% aside, 
we really need 60 or 75 percent. And that's you know, made obvious by all the fires we're seeing around the world and the heat waves. And so we need the IRA to become better versions of itself as it's written in every new legislative opportunity. So, you know, it might sound strange to you, but I'm doing a lot of work in New Zealand. They're four weeks out from a transformative election. Mm. They could set very interesting precedents for ways to use their carbon credit system to help electrify and decarbonize. They could set precedents in household financing. The IRA was regressive because it was a tax code hack. You had to earn enough money to be able to get the rebate for the electric car. The Australian government has a tradition of more progressive policy. I think we could do IRAs that reach all demographics and do a much better job for low and middle income households. I think the world has to take every one of those opportunities to get ambition, to be, get more ambition. It's our only real climate hope. I, relevant, the other day was in a small round table including, among other people, Australian Energy Minister Chris Bowen. And he said that in his estimation, the IRA was the single most important thing that's ever been done for climate, including the Paris Agreement. He thinks it's bigger than the Paris Agreement in terms of the international reverberations, which may or may not be a bit of exaggeration, but I think it's testament to um, the transformative effect it's having on other countries' thinking. I think he's right. I wouldn't have thought that he would think that. I'm glad he's thinking that. And I think it's true. The IRA has put everyone on notice a little bit. Yeah. So let's talk about Australia then. We're here in Australia. You're working with Rewiring Australia. And from my sort of discussions around with various and sundry people here in Australia, my sense is that there's not a lot of should we or shouldn't we anymore. It's all, how should we, right? It's all, what should we do? Like, it seems like, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm not talking to the conservatives here, uh, <laughs> but at least among the ruling coalition, it seems like they want to do something big. But it also seems like, as you say, there's this lingering, we can't just spend a bunch of money. We can't keep up with the U.S. on sheer spending. We need something else. We, you know, there's this lingering sort of like, we've got to be revenue neutral. We've got to balance our budget. All this, this, this lingering, the lingering hold of, uh, of the aforementioned neoliberalism. So what's your sense of how wide the range of practical possibilities is here? Do you think there's appetite for going as big as you want to go? I know there is, and I'm encouraged by conversations I've had with the coalition government. I'm even more encouraged by some of the conversations I have with the independents that made an incredible showing at the last election. The Teals, see my previous podcast. Yeah, they don't have a lot of political power, but they are, they're having some influence, which is good. But I, I see there's a lot of appetite. The challenge is we have a very strange economy. Two thirds of our emissions don't even count on us. Right. Scope three. Yeah. So we, we make coal for the rest of the world and have some liquid natural gas and none of that counts on us. In fact, 10% of the Australian emissions that do count us is using fossil fuels to get those fossil fuels to mm. international markets. Because of that, there's the fear that if we lose, the prevailing fear that we lose fossil fuels and what do we replace that with right. is driving a lot of misinformation. You know, two or three months ago, I went with a smart energy council and a bunch of people variously involved in renewables and electrification to Parliament House and there were 40 of us 
and everyone was self-congratulatory. Like, isn't this great? And I had to, I was giving the motivational speech and I was like, you know that there's 80 gas industry people here every day. This is the first time <laughs> we've ever showed up with 40 people. And that's what we're facing. A manifestation of that is in the last budget. We got a billion dollars in the bill for electrification. They got $2 billion for hydrogen. <laughs> hydrogen production in Australia can only increase the retail price of electricity for Australians because they have to take the lowest price electricity to produce hydrogen, otherwise it won't make it economic. And we don't need hydrogen to decarbonize any major portion of the Australian economy. So that's really just to do exports. So Yeah, there's a lot of talk about Australia becoming a hydrogen superpower. superpower. So uh, we can talk about that in a second. Yeah, so the genius of the Inflation Reduction Act is the majority of the incentives went to consumers. That's good politics. I'm going to help you have the shiny things that will help you go green, get to zero emissions, and lower your cost of energy. The majority of the conversation here is how do we do handouts to largely foreign-owned industry so that we can maintain the jobs, but, you know, the jobs we get aren't that great, and they're foreign, you know, the profits are foreign-owned. I think 85% of our coal and a huge amount of our iron ore industries are foreign-owned at this point. Good grief. So I think we need to win the argument in Australia that to make it good politics, help single mothers in the outskirts of Sydney or Melbourne buy an electric car so they can save $3,000 a year on their horrific commute. That would be good politics and the fastest way for us to address domestic economy emissions reductions. The government's first two pieces of climate policy, my apologies, Chris, I think are going to be a bit troubling for the government. So one was the safeguard mechanism, which is an incredibly complicated, arcane way for industry to basically buy industry credits. Unclear that that will deliver any emissions reductions this decade. The second piece was a program called Rewiring the Nation, which was to connect the renewable energy zones, which were picked politically, not necessarily for energy cost reasons, to connect them with big transmission lines. So it'll take five plus years to get those transmission lines in the ground. You're going to piss off every farmer and everyone in a small town who has to look at the wires. And it'll take another couple of years for the solar and the wind to connect up to them. So it will not deliver any emissions reductions by our critical 2030 date. So I think it's more reasonable to say, look, the thing you can do now, rooftop solar, we could power 60 plus percent of all of our household energy uses, including our cars, on our rooftops here. It's the cheapest electricity in the world, is Australian rooftop solar. Three to four cents a kilowatt hour after financing. And you could do all of those emissions reductions very, very quickly because pretty much the, all the industries are, if not at scale, getting close to scale. Electric vehicles, electric heat pumps, right. induction cooktops, household well, batteries. Let's talk about rooftop solar for a second. It's, um, I've said this before, but the sort of freakish success <laughs> of Australian rooftop solar seems oddly little discussed here in the, in the sort of policy and in, in energy um, discussions I'm having, and, and, and I don't know why it's not trumpeted more. So maybe just tell us a little bit about why is it so cheap? And something I hear, I mean, I've heard a lot of confident, very opposing opinions. Some people will say it's creating this huge duck curve. There's this huge swamp of solar during the day. We're having to curtail it now. We've already, like building more is basically pointless at this point until we have more firming and more transmission. And then other people say, 
oh no, there's plenty of runway, there's plenty more rooftops, there's plenty more we could do with rooftop solar. So maybe just say a little bit about why it's so damn cheap and how much headroom you think there is. You know, I tried to do an, a column for the New York Times. They actually published it on why Australian rooftop is so cheap. They flubbed it. They didn't want me to say that it, American rooftop solar is more expensive than the grid, which it is, because they didn't want it to defer, deter people from purchasing rooftop solar so much for integrity and journalism. <laughs> so, so I actually interviewed a whole bunch of people who were very early in the like 1990s, early 2000s Australian solar industry, and I got roughly 10 different answers for why. <laughs> Some was political luck. We got John Howard traded sort of a yes to doing some rooftop solar stuff because he was going to throw Australia under the bus at Kyoto. And some academics and some smart early industry people took advantage of that. Part of it is we created a certification and training program that took a lot of the liability away from the, you'd call them contractors, we call them tradies. Hmm. That took a big chunk of the cost out. And then Australians abhor, you know, Americans like to think they're small government, but we really want to be small government and low bureaucracy here. On average, it takes three months to get a permit to put solar on a rooftop in the US. 50% of sales cancelled in that three months because you get cold feet. Ugh. You have to go through a, a, what's called an ASJ, an authority having jurisdiction. They have different rules in every single state. I think there's 11,000 ASJs in the US. In Australia, you get the permit over the phone in 24 hours and the tradie is on your roof 24 hours later. Wow. Um, I keep trying to convince my colleagues at Rewiring America, we should run a get the government off my roof campaign in Texas <laughs> because there's no reason. In fact, an Australian solar installer is paid about 10% in real dollars more than an average American solar installer. Hmm. Are those good jobs here? Because in the US, you know, they, they have a pretty bad reputation. They're not fabulous jobs. They're not terrible jobs. They are definitely hardworking trade jobs. And so what's the headroom? You, you One out of three... Australia. We have 35%. I think California just touched 2% <laughs> penetration. <laughs> um, and already California is panicking and trying to change the rules and saying we have too much, blah, blah, blah. Well, the people, you know, I, I now work with what they call here DNSPs. We, again, in a fit of neoliberalism in the 1990s, we introduced market reform. We split our utility monopolies into four functions, transmission, distribution, retail, and generation. The price of electricity went up because now you had four times the overhead. <laughs> but the good news is that the DNSPs sort of see the opportunity. So they control the local poles and wires. Mm. When you talk to the CEOs of the DNSPs, they understand that you need to deliver 300% of the electricity over those local poles and wires to accommodate the electric cars and the electric cooktops and the electric water heaters. So their business is going to grow. They understand that even if you saturate Australian rooftops, which might saturate at 75 or 80% penetration, with big systems, eight kilowatts, their business still grows. And so the natural partnership for a lowest cost energy Australia is a partnership between the city, the householder, and the DNSP. Mm. And when you talk to those DNSPs, they understand that the batteries are coming. They mm. understand that the electric cars are coming. They understand that all the demand response systems are coming and that that will solve this problem. But if you talk to a generator, they don't think about batteries, then electric cars is the storage and mopping all this up. If you talk to the retailer, they're a bit scared that they might get cut out of this because the householder can do it without them. <laughs> and if you talk to the transmission companies, you know, they're a regulated monopoly that gets a guaranteed return yeah, on investment yeah. for building wires, whether or not you like it. So <laughs> none of them are particularly interested in 
in the truth, <laughs> shall we say. So I think that's why the answers vary greatly. Mm. And so you think you can go from 35% to 70 or 80% of rooftop solar? With 75% penetration in Australia of eight kilowatt systems, we would produce 60% of all electricity required for 11 million households with all electric vehicles, all electric appliances. And you think you can balance that out and firm that just with household EVs, household batteries, household demand response? Not entirely. And so people often hear me and they think, oh, he's the off-grid guy, but I'm not. You need other renewables in the mix. It is handy that Australia has some hydro. We're doing a big pumped hydro project. It's over budget and behind schedule, but that's true of all big infrastructure. Nevertheless, we need that. We need wind, which counter-correlates with solar and will fill the gaps in in winter. And really, Australia's best strategy is oversupply. Mm. So you don't install the, um, you know, California has rules that make you install sort of the summertime amount of solar to just do your electric appliances in your house. Solar in Australia is so cheap that you should install enough solar so that you've got enough to run your house and your cars in the winter, which is a 12 or 15 kilowatt system. And it's much cheaper to have 200% of three or four cent generation cost solar than a huge amount of batteries or these other things. So Australia can actually quite easily do this curiously with an oversupply strategy and good energy management. And yes, you have to have a, a mix of renewables, but you know, everyone agrees and expects that and we're, we're doing offshore wind and onshore wind and all the things. Let's talk about the other huge topic that is extremely front of mind for Australian politicians, which is Australia's extraordinary amount of critical minerals that are going to be needed for the energy transition and batteries and solar panels, et cetera. How much does it have? What does it currently do with them? And what ought it to do with them? We have the first, second, third, or fourth largest known ore bodies in the world for all of the above materials, cobalt, nickel, iron, aluminium, silicon, lithium, copper, tin, which are all the things you need. We sold 55% of the world's lithium last year. So we can easily be a much, much more dynamic, much, much more profitable economy selling those minerals and metals to the world. You don't even need the super exotic stuff like neodymium. If we just processed our iron ore domestically into steel here, which will be a good idea because we will have the cheapest renewables in the world, it will be hard for someone else. You know, if you make hydrogen in Australia from our sunshine, it's gonna be, by the time it's in China, five times more expensive than our sunshine. Half of the cost of steel making is the energy that goes into it. So we have this fundamental advantage in the new economy that we'll be able to make all of these metals. We only process 1% of our iron ore into steel domestically at the moment. If we processed 100%, it would be more than a $1 trillion industry. Mm -hmm. That is 10 times larger than all of our fossil fuel industries. So even if we don't do the exotic stuff like lithium and copper and nickel and tin and all the other things, just on iron and aluminium, we can make hay and it's a better export economy than the fossil fuel economy that we have. You think it makes more sense rather than using the wind and sunshine to make hydrogen, exporting the hydrogen to other steel-making countries where they will make green steel, you think it makes more sense to just make the green steel here? And do you have the infrastructure and skills and uh, like how nascent, how much would it take to revive that industry? Well, this is a bit of a question about neoliberalism. 
Um, my father was the first person in the history of Sanley to get a degree. He was paid by the Australian wool industry to become an expert in wool making when that was our major export. I had a full paid ticket through university paid for by the Australian steel industry when that was what we were going to do. So we used to, as a country, invest, and they were, they were fully funded free educations for both of us. We used to understand that you invested in the people to do those things and then they would build the industries. We stopped really doing that in the 2000s. And so if we can find the courage to do it again, we can do this and then we still do have enough muscle memory in Australia. We are losing it rapidly, but we could still do it. I think it's just a matter of political appetite. So how do you make an argument? I mean, what do you say to a politician who says, sure, okay, yes, let's do more processing of our critical minerals. Let's move farther up the value chain of critical minerals. Sure, let's process our iron ore. Let's even make steel. And then let's also continue exporting met coal because there's a huge appetite for met coal and it's good for our economy. What is the freestanding argument for seizing fossil fuel production? Is there an argument? Either the high met process in Scandinavia or the Boston metals process or one of these things will eliminate met coal within the next decade. You think so? So it's existential. And a little bit to your last point, but also to this question. The energy cost of coal into steel making is about a half a cent a kilowatt hour equivalent in heat. The energy coal of natural gas in steel making is about a half, one cent per kilowatt hour in heat. The Australian stretch goal for hydrogen is $2 a kilogram, which is copied from America's $1 a kilogram. That's six or seven cents a kilowatt hour at the electrolyzer. That's before you've transported or shipped it. It'll be 12 cents in any reasonable optimistic estimation. So you're not going to make steel with a lot of hydrogen because you're going to make steel cost five or six times as much. So, you know, I think we've just got to get with the program and invest in those things. They are the critical industries for our next century. We've got to invest in them. You know, we have all the American problems. We gave away all of industry between 1980 and now. You know, with my metallurgical degree, I went off to MIT because there were no jobs in metallurgy mm. in, in the 1990s because we were just starting the neoliberal ideal. So talk about then, I mean, this, this ties into very closely the, the export economy. Talk a little bit about Australia's relationship with the sort of Asia-Pacific region, like Japan, for instance. Like Japan is an island not blessed with a lot of domestic energy supply resources, wants to, I think, has some illusions that it's going to become, that it's going to sort of import a bunch of hydrogen fuels from Australia to run its economy on. What is the sort of political valence of these other countries? What do they want and what do you think would make more sense to give them? We've had long-standing relationships with Japan. My son is in high school in Australia, much more likely to learn Japanese in Australia than you are Spanish. Mm. Germany and Japan both lost World War II because they didn't have a domestic supply of liquid fuels. Germany was developing hydrogen for the V2 bombers, and the V2 bombers were powered with hydrogen. They were using coal gasification. Yeah, right. We had seven years of both of those countries believing that their path to energy independence was through hydrogen, and that explains probably more than anything else why the last two sets of automakers in the world to really commit to electrification are the Germans and the Japanese. Uh. As giant trading partners of ours, they're driving our hydrogen fever. <laughs> but refer to the previous conversation, it's just a very expensive way to do everything. 
we will do some hydrogen and you need it for ammonia and you might need it for steel making, but only the redox component, not for the energy component. Redox meaning the reduction reaction, getting rid of the oxides. But you know, we are still addicted to this idea that we're going to sell them gobsmacking amounts of hydrogen. Well, they're addicted to the idea too, are they not? <laughs> they are also addicted to the idea. And I think there's a reckoning there. Interesting. So what is Japan's answer? Because it seems like one of these really difficult equations in the, in the transition. What does Japan do? Japan will almost certainly turn its nuclear power back on or it will figure out a better relationship with its geothermal resources. Mm. It also has extremely good offshore wind. And, you know, they're a manufacturing and precision engineering powerhouse that's not going away anytime soon. The question is, can they survive the 20-year head start they gave to China on electric vehicles? So that's my concern for Japan. Interesting. Toyota and the Japanese companies drive so much of the economy. So uh, turning back to Australia, you obviously a big role in your sort of head, your scheme is played by EVs playing a role as storage. Let's just talk briefly about vehicle to grid because this is another thing when you sort of toss it out in public, you get a lot of extremely confident, extremely mixed <laughs> opinions about its potential, um, its realistic, how realistic it is, whether consumers will put up with it, whether cars are available when you need them, et cetera, et cetera. You, how bullish are you on, on that, on V2G? I think there will be some V2G. I think it will take longer than we think, and I think we'll give up a smaller portion of the battery to the grid than mm. people expect. And I don't think that's really the relevant question. The only thing that matters is, are the cars going to be plugged in when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing? So really it's about a profusion of vehicle charging infrastructure. So we, that, that is absolutely critical and we have to do that. And you can make the numbers work without intoning huge amounts of V2G. I think V2G will happen. The battery packs are just getting bigger. Um, unfortunately, Australia, I would have hoped, speaking of Japan, Japan has K cars, you know, K-E-I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're fabulous. They're limited they're, they've in gone, size. They've gone the viral on Twitter uh, several times recently. Yeah, I was hoping Australia would, we could manufacture cars in Australia again if we'd made K cars because we'd only compete with the Japanese. <laughs> right. If we want to make trucks or utes, we can't compete because, you know. So, um, and Australia looks like we're going to go down the giant ute path. I own a Rivian in the US. A giant 172 ute? kilowatt hour battery on four wheels. I will use in an all electric household driving two cars, the average amount Australians, 37 kilowatt hours a day. So the battery in that Rivian is five days. The battery in the second Rivian is another five days. So I've got 10 days of energy from my household in my two utes. I kind of hope for the planet that that's not how we solve climate change. <laughs> but you can tell that story now where, where I think it's still a political sore point in Australia. What are we going to do with our utes? I mean, it's a, it's a religion here. What, the utes? Yeah. And a lot of 23-year-olds own 70... Their, their, their best asset is a seventy or $90,000 ute, and they're probably in debt in every other way. <laughs> so it became strangely central to the Australian ethos in the last 30 years while I was away. I was surprised when I returned. Yeah. yeah, what is going on with the obsession with big trucks? Do you think Australia will ever, speaking of moving up the value train, you know, you go all the way up from critical minerals 
you get to battery cells, you get to batteries, you get to EVs, and then you get to battery recycling. How far up that chain can and should Australia go? All the way? I think we are fine if we are the foundry of the world. If all we do is make the metals, the turn bauxite into aluminium, turn iron ore into steel, turn lithium brines into lithium. Would I like us to go further up the value chain? Yes. My father was employed in going up the value chain in the textile industry. He made the spinnaker that defeated America in the America's Cup in the <laughs> 1980s. We know we can do those things. Very hard to imagine how we do it in Australia. Um, our prevailing wage is 10 times higher than all of our neighbours. Oh, really? I mean, our neighbours are Indonesia, right. Asia, Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka. Right, right. We can only do it with extraordinary amounts of automation and probably things like border carbon adjustment mechanisms, something that was announced today in Australia with the idea that oh, really? your mate Chris Bowen. Um, <laughs> but you, it's pretty hard to imagine that we'll do these things otherwise. We do have a solar manufacturer here. They make incredibly high-quality cells. They're 25% more expensive than the Chinese ones. Mm. Um, they are better, probably. They come with a better warranty, but we are a Walmart bargain-hunting country like yours, which is not called Walmart, it's called Bunnings here. <laughs> so I worry we could easily make electric cars again. We could, you know, there's no reason not to do any of these things. I suspect in the wind turbine space we'll make towers and maybe the floating platforms. We won't make the nacelles. Denmark and Korea have a, and America have a 20 year, 30 year head start on that. We could make the blades, but we probably won't. But it doesn't matter if we were in a best use of our extraordinary abundance of very cheap renewables. If we are the world's foundry, we're in great shape. And to put that in perspective, Australia could supply all of the energy for our domestic economy and process all of our metals with about a quarter of 1% of its land area dedicated to renewables. <laughs> America would need 2% to do the same and China would need up north of 10%. Interesting. So really only if Australia steps up to be the foundry of the world does the whole world get there? Yeah, and, and what a better moral position to be in than the one you're in currently, which is the entire health and success of your economy is contingent on the failure of humanity to solve its, its biggest problem. Is that, is that moral dilemma sinking in to the public? It's a, oh, you know, the public that I hang out with. <laughs> but that's not the public. You know, it's the public you hang out with in America. I think in Australia and America, 2 to 5% of people worry about the moral dilemma. Right. What I don't understand, and I was reflecting upon this, and for whatever reason you sparked this thought, we still have never had any important global politician in command of a reasonably sized economy stand up and say, solving climate change is gonna be good for us. Like if you think about all of Biden's Biden says jobs, jobs, jobs. When I think climate, I think jobs, that's his. Shtick, right? Yeah, but no one ever stood up there and Winston Churchill, the, we'll, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll, we'll, we'll succeed, I'll, I'll improve the air quality of your children, I'll, I'll do all of the things, right? Biden's message is very simple, jobs, jobs, jobs. It would be within reason and not exaggerating for these, you know, Prime Minister Albanese to stand up and say, I have a vision for the country, here's the 50-year vision, we will be the world's foundry, we will increase our exports by five X, we will own more of them because it's on crown land, the majority of the ore. We will lower energy costs because of our abundant renewables and 
I think that's that would go a lot, you know, in a similarly important historical moment to the IRA. I think if Australia did that, that would also get a whole bunch of countries to be like, oh, because of our rooftop solar, we're ten years ahead of everyone else on the on the cost curves. Yeah, and it's so it's so much more inspiring than being a hydrogen superpower. Because for the average citizen, who gives a f- no Australians don't think we're a superpower a in anything. I mean, we're we're a superpower at women's soccer this week. Uh, yeah, but, go, go but, Matildas. Go Matildas. But we're not we're not a Australians don't I don't think truly identify with that superpower narrative. I understand the political origins of that narrative. That's what environmental organisations had to sell ten years ago to a very conservative government mm. as the reason to do anything in climate. Mm. Running out of time here, There's, there was one other subject I wanted to talk to you about, which is a very beloved uh, subject of yours and of rewirings, which is anytime you bring up, let's electrify households to average folk, what you hear is, it's too expensive. I can't afford solar on my roof. I can't afford a heat pump. It's so much more than a gas boiler. EVs are so much more expensive. These are all toys for rich people. There's a real populist, faux populist, call it, pushback to all this stuff. And your response to this in various and sundry ways has to do with financing. So in the Australian context... Which brings us to neoliberalism. <laughs> once again, we're back to our old friend neoliberalism. Let's talk about what, what would it look like to finance Australians' shift. So the perception of those things in America is a little bit true because... Yeah, fossil- yeah I mean, it's not, it's, they're not, people are not making it up. Yeah, your fossil fuels are cheaper your bureaucracy is heavier and incurs more soft costs. And because it was a tax code hack, the IRA, it's regressive. So you have to be a rich household to be, make enough money to earn the tax credits. Mm. There's a few in the margin. Some things. are refundable, right? I mean, some are... Some are refundable and, and, you know, rewiring America and others are trying to figure out creative ways to actually package these up so you can deliver it to low-income households in smarter ways. But my true hope for Australia, because we have a stronger tradition on the labor side, on the left side of politics, and of broad social policy, including Medicare and Medicaid and the Australian public health system, which is a little teetering right now, but has been extremely strong for a long time. Mm. I think we are capable of big, and we we had a higher education contribution scheme here. It's a little out of fashion right at the present moment because the rules of it changed a little bit under the neoliberals. This is how you finance your education. we have in the past written global precedent-setting social policies that were really around debt and, mm. and about how, the, how and who people pay for things. And so I think there's an extraordinary opportunity for this government to get emissions reductions this decade, which are critical, and the only way where the majority of those are this decade is in our vehicles and our homes because we don't have green steel yet. We don't right. have green hydrogen yet. Yeah. They would address the cost of living crisis and the government could do concessional financing so they could either buy down the interest rate. Um, the biggest problem in America and Australia is probably 60% or more of homes don't qualify with a credit rating that mm. allows banks to lend them the money. So while I, you know, a single mother in Western Sydney would absolutely save two or $3,000 a year on gasoline, even if she's a nurse, her credit rating probably isn't good enough to finance an electric car to access those savings. There are ways that the Australian government could step in, either by backstopping the banks or guaranteeing the banks um, doing something like income contingent loans, which is how we finance their education system. And if you look at the macroeconomics, it's a slam dunk for the country. If all of Australian households were all electric, we'd save 
$40 billion a year. The problem with and, revenue and, neutral, because you brought up the thing that I hate the most, is <laughs> we have an obstructionist treasury that thinks the country is broke, uh, that wants it to be revenue neutral, and the problem like is... Like a household budget, so... Right. But that's because they think that they will pay the costs and the households will receive the benefit and that that's not revenue neutral. Will the they, households pay fucking They don't taxes? understand that the households will take all that savings, they'll spend it elsewhere in the economy right. and the government will see back in taxes. They're not they, lighting the money on fire. David Roberts, can we end with your Jedi mind trick that convinces <laughs> Australia's neoliberal treasury that this is a fucking great idea and they should do it to save the world? Yeah, I mean, this I feel like is... In the wake of IRA, even in the U.S., but also here, definitely, this is sort of one of the last barriers to truly good policy is just breaking this notion that the government has like this box of money and when it spends it, it's gone and then the government's broke. Like no household behaves that way. No business behaves that way. No, no growth enterprise is revenue neutral and why would why would it be and so you give money to households they grow they flourish yep they spend money government flourishes they pay taxes here's, here's an extraordinary thing that i've been money to save money spend money to make money i'm not sure if this is a useful idea but i keep getting stuck on this australia's housing stock is worth about 100 trillion dollars it would cost you far less than one trillion dollars to electrify all of the households including all of their vehicles over the next 20 years you'd be zero emissions by 2040 and for less than one percent of the value of the asset base we're there like absolutely you don't need to be a banker to know that we can afford to do that <laughs> yes all right well Let's finish on that note. One last uh, uh, gut punch to neoliberalism. Seems like a, <laughs> seems like a, a good place to wrap up. Uh, thanks so much for coming, Saul. It's been a delight doing this. You know, I've meant to have you on the pod forever. We'll probably do it again sometime. But uh, good luck cracking heads in Australia, getting people, uh, you know, and, and, and I hear uh, rumor has it that big things are in the works Might relatively soon, October-ish, November. Albanese is going to D.C., I think, in October, November. And... I think may or may not announce something. We will either see something. The announcements in America will likely be, you know, we'll give you cheap lithium if you give us big monster trucks. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Um, My KPIs are, or OKRs, I can never remember the difference between the two damn things. Neoliberals invented both of them. (laughs) But my KPI is federal budget of next year. Are we fixing the tax code structurally in a way that enables this to happen? And then what is the platform climate-wise for this government for the next election. And they will be the political moments where we know we've either done a better job of the IRA or, or whether we've been lackeys to the gas and coal industry and we're merely trying to, you know, squeeze a few extra dollars for some multinationals out of our dirt. <laughs> All right. All right. With that, uh, we'll conclude. Thanks so much, Saul. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.